Well, we're back in the Old Testament to hear prophecy about this child who is going to be born that we remember at Christmas. The background of the passage we're looking at is God's judgment on those who reject him and the distress that that will bring, but there is hope. Let's hear about this in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thanks for that reading, Steve. Let me add my welcome to Sam's. Um, if you are new or visiting at this time of Christmas, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're continuing through this short series as we think about the birth of Christ at this Christmas time. Um, one quick note just uh, on the theme that uh, Sam was praying on previously uh, in terms of helping those in need. Uh, many of you may have been involved in bringing in food that was placed under our tree in the last week or two. I had the privilege of taking that down to... Uh, Port Kembla to Baptist Care um, there, Hope Street, and that will be put into hampers that will be delivered to people this week. I think they're hoping to meet the needs of 80 to 100 people uh, that are regular clients, as they would call them, coming into Hope Street there. So that will be a great help to a lot of people this Christmas. So let me encourage you uh, with that information. But let me pray for us now, ask that God will help us as we think about what is a really well-known passage to us that we might see something afresh of uh, God's work in our world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here tonight. We thank you for this time of the year that allows us, allows many at least, to slow down somewhat, uh, to reflect. And we pray that you might help us to pause tonight, clear our minds of the other distractions and worries and things we perhaps are organizing in the coming days as we head towards Christmas. Allow us to focus on your work in our world and your great plan for us as we reflect on this prophecy from Isaiah. We ask for your help and the work of your spirit in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, it was back on Anzac Day, April 25 in 2006. You may remember that the Beaconsfield mine collapse happened in Tasmania. 17 people were underground at the time of that. 14 of them got out instantly. One person sadly died, but two men were trapped about a kilometre underground, except that no one was aware of their presence till about five days later. They knew that they were there somewhere, but they didn't know whether they were alive and eventually located through thermal imaging and microphones. But these two miners, Brant Webb and Todd Russell, were eventually freed on May 9th, a full two weeks after being trapped underground. And they had survived being trapped in part of the vehicle um, that they were working on when the initial rockfall happens, um, a vehicle called a telehandler, and they were at this arm at the end of it with a, a steel cage over them which broke the rockfall above them, allowed them to survive. And then they had their miners' helmets, and so they collected water that was coming down through the rock above them um, in their helmets. But, of course, they had many problems in that two weeks, um, one of which was they had very little light. They were effectively in the dark despite their helmets. And after being detected about five days uh, underground, uh, the, the blasting halted where they were trying to get access to the tunnel where they were, and they drilled down a hole to them. It was about 90 millimetres which they then lined with PVC and they were able to pass down food and water and communication equipment, but also a torch. And eventually after two weeks, uh, 14 nights um, at about 4.30 a.m. in the morning, three rescuers broke through the final bit of rock that stood between them and the two miners where they were trapped. And they said to them, we can see your light. To which the miners replied, we can see your light also. And eventually at about 6am, they were able to emerge, both men walking out of the lift cage at the surface, unaided, into the dim morning light. And so it's a picture of this theme that we're going to consider tonight in Isaiah. And so our first point is this, light in the darkness. Light in the darkness. We see this in our passage that we're considering this evening um, that a light is dawning, and it too offers hope. It offers salvation to people, freedom from darkness. So notice again the words of the prophet Isaiah, just verses 1 and 2 to begin with in chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So we've got this strong contrast here between the light and darkness in verse 2. Describe vividly for us. And define somewhat for us, what is this darkness? Well, in verse 2, we get the parallel phrase, living in the land of the shadow of death. But what is that referring to? What is this shadow of death that hangs over the people? Well, verse 1 helps us here. The prophet speaks of gloom and distress and a humbling of these northern tribes in Galilee. Zebulun and Naphtali were up the northern extent of Israel, two of the 12 tribes that made up the nation. 
And that first word, verse 1, nevertheless, alerts us to the fact that this gloom and distress spoken of refers back to chapter 8, indeed the first full eight chapters. And the whole context there laid out for us that God's judgment is coming upon his people. He's actually going to bring the nation of Assyria, which was a superpower in the day, to come through Israel and wreak havoc on the country. Why was that going to happen? Well, sadly, the nation had turned away from God into idolatry for a couple of centuries after the dividing of the kingdom north and south, particularly in the north. And so now God's judgment is finally going to fall on the country. And he'll bring the Assyrians in 721 BC and they'll wipe out the whole northern ten tribes. The whole northern kingdom will go and the people will be taken off into exile and that same Assyrian army will then come back 20 years later in 701 and get to the very doorstep of Jerusalem, wipe out much of Judah as well. So this section that we're looking at in chapter 9, this wonderful section that we know well, is really this crescendo, this finale of hope beyond eight chapters of judgment that have been building and building about how God is going to act against his own people through this foreign nation. And those northern tribes were going to be the ones that felt the brunt of the initial attacks. The Assyrians would come down from the north and Zebulun and Naphtali would get the initial brunt of the attacks. But we're also told here that they would be the source of future life, that this area of Galilee, surprisingly, would be honoured at some point in the future. Well, how will that happen? Well, it brings us to our second point, the effect of the light. If a light is dawning and there's going to be some hope in the future, uh, then the prophet then wants to turn in verses 3 to 5 and talk about the effect of this coming light before he tells us what it is. So notice here we have this mystery of the light, and then in verses 3 to 5 he states, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire." See, with his gaze fixed firmly on the future, Isaiah sees a glorious reversal of the devastation that's just about to be inflicted. It must be very hard for the readers at that time to be hearing God is about to act in judgment. But by the way, there's going to be this wonderful thing that happens beyond that. So you're trying to take in the really bad news and then there, yet there's good news to come that will follow. And so he talks about this rejoicing in verse 3, which would seem strange after this announcement of God's judgment, but he speaks about a day beyond the judgment where there will be joy that's like a harvest time and that of a military victory. Now, I think with regard to harvest celebrations, we struggle um, to get our minds around that today, to really appreciate the joy uh, we live in a time, in a technological age, where we simply expect an abundant result. We have machines, we have drought-resistant strains of crops, we have pesticides, and so we just expect there'll be a great harvest every year. But of course, even in a country with all the technology that we have today, like Australia, it doesn't take you much thinking to be reminded that even just 10 or 12 years ago, we were in the grip of a great drought. 
that the levels of return for farmers was the lowest it had ever been on government records. And so I think when we think about those moments in time, we get perhaps just a little inkling of the joy of actually having a bountiful harvest in an age where we just expect it. But take your mind back, if you can then, imagine so long ago, 2,700 years ago, without all the advantages that we have today, and it's no wonder that people had huge festivals every time there was a harvest. It was such a, a provision of God that there was any harvest, let alone a bountiful one. And so this would be a festival that could go on for a week or two in many countries in the ancient world at that time, Israel included, where you gave thanks to God in great joy for this amazing abundance. And the writer Isaiah is trying to say, picture that joy. That is how amazing it will be when this light finally dawns in our country. And then he's got a second example of this military comparison, and he talks about the day of Midian's defeat. What's going on there? Well, he's harking back to Judges 6 and 7, where, remember, Gideon was raised up as the judge, the leader, and he defeated the foreign nation of Midian that had been oppressing God's people for 20 years. Can you imagine? I mean, it still happens today, but a country that has been so under the thumb of another country that it's completely downtrodden, for decades on end, and then finally that oppression is released and the joy of the population at that moment when suddenly we're free again, the celebrations that would break out. And so he pictures that time of joy for Israel when finally the yoke of the Midianites was removed through Gideon, such jubilation. But did you notice in this description in verses 3 to 5, there's not only this prospect of joy when this light finally dawns, but there's another effect here. There is peace, the arrival of peace. So verse 5 has a depiction of the end of war, of peace descending over the land so that this great light that is to come has this twofold effect, both peace and joy, which finally brings us to this question of, well, what is this light? What can bring such amazing joy and peace? What is he talking about here? So point three, the identity of the promised light, the identity of the promised light. Finally, the prophet, after this delayed buildup, you might say, gets to his climax of his announcement in verses six and seven. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So suddenly we're told as he gets to his crescendo here that the light is a person. Indeed, it's a baby boy that is to be born. Now, we know the end of the story, I guess, sitting here so many centuries later, but put yourselves in the shoes of an original reader in the 8th century or sometime beyond there. For many people, the context back in that time means that, well, it must be one of the good kings that is going to come in Judah. You know, perhaps it's King Hezekiah, perhaps it's King Josiah. They were two of the better ones towards the end of what was a miserable time, to be honest, overall. They came and did good things. They actually had a heart that followed the Lord. 
But the problem with somebody like Hezekiah being the fulfillment of this child being born is that Hezekiah had just been born three years earlier when this was written. And so the, the events that are pictured here of the birth of this child are future. There's a future anticipation still. But there's a far bigger problem in verses 6 and 7 for any human king ever being able to fulfill that. And that's these amazing exalted titles that are given and this reign as well that will go on forever, an eternal reign of the son of David. They're just simply things that can never be attributed to any of the human kings. They never got close to fulfilling an eternal reign, dying as they did 30 or 40 years later at best usually. But no, these titles themselves, never could you call mighty God, prince of peace, as language that can be applied to a human king. This must be one who is a God king, God in flesh, God taking on human form. How else could such titles be given and not be blasphemous? And so this section is clearly about the Messiah, the Son of God that would come. And as we start reading the New Testament and we get to the Gospels, we hear Jesus being described as the true light of the world who had come. And in case the links weren't clear for us as we read Isaiah 9, when we get to the Gospels, the writers were wanting to make that link really clearly for us. So Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, let's go there now and see how he takes it up in his Gospel and makes this link for us. Luke 1 He records the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary, the mother of Jesus, from verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. For a Jewish reader reading these kind of words in Luke chapter 1, there are lights going on everywhere. How can all of these threads from the Old Testament be coming together in the birth of this one to this woman Mary? The universal authority of this promised Christ or Messiah is the big theme here. And, of course, this son is identified for us clearly here as Jesus. The birth of this child is how Isaiah 9 verse 1 is even fulfilled because Jesus, although he was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the south, he would grow up in Nazareth. He would grow up in the area of Galilee in the north, this hated area, this mixed area of Jew and Gentile. And that's how verse 1, God would honor Galilee of the Gentiles. There's the fulfillment. Jesus would grow up and preach the gospel in that place first of all places. The very place that experienced God's judgment first would be the first to hear the good news, the gospel of salvation in the awaited Christ. And so Jesus is announced by Luke here or Gabriel, the angel, as Luke records it. And at the end of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2, Luke also goes on to show that these two expected effects of the light dawning of this one coming, peace and joy as we've seen, fit perfectly what Jesus achieves and is spoken of doing. So have a look at um, verses 78 and 79. Here at the end of Luke chapter 1, 
This is Zachariah's song of praise. He's speaking about the birth of his own son, John the Baptist, but also about the coming Christ. And he, he writes this, by which the rising of the sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So here Jesus the light pierces the darkness and guides us into peace. And then secondly, in Luke 10, the angel announcing the birth of Christ to the shepherds and then supported by a whole heavenly choir says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then as the heavenly host appears and they sing praises to God in verse 14, they proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And so we see all of these threads coming together in the birth of this one, the Lord Jesus. He is the one that can bring both peace and joy. He was the one that was spoken of in Isaiah 9, who will be the prince of peace, whose increase of government and peace, there will be no end. These are the effects of the coming of Jesus. And that, all of that is wonderful description. But how do we enter into this eternal kingdom that this Christ will have? How do we receive this joy and this peace that's being spoken of so that it might be ours and not just something that is spoken about for others? What is the path to peace that we can be guided in by this one who was born? Now, is the Bible, when it's speaking about peace, just referring to an end of war? It's usually the first thing people think about in our society today, right? They hear the word peace, they think absence of war. And it's understandable. We live in a world racked by division, violence everywhere. No one needs to tell you about the ongoing war in Ukraine. And so our society longs for peace. You know, perhaps Zachariah and the angels were suggesting at least at this Christmas time, people should lay down their arms and there should be peace from armed conflict. You know, that actually happened once famously, the first Christmas day in World War I in 1914. Uh, British and German troops actually laid down their guns and celebrated Christmas together in no man's land between the two sets of trenches. The war actually briefly came to a halt. In some places, the Germans started the festivities. They set up Christmas trees on top of their parapets, started decorating them, getting out their food. Elsewhere, the British acted first and started bonfires, started letting off rockets and different fireworks. Could be mistaken for gunfire, I guess. There's a danger there. But it was incredible. Like it was throwing a lot of the commanders. They didn't know what was going on. How are they going to bring the troops back to focus? Um, one record of it is a private Oswald Tilly. He was part of the London, uh, London Rifle Brigade. And he wrote back home to his parents as all this was happening. And he said to them, just you think that while you're eating your turkey, I've been out talking and shaking hands with the very men I was trying to shoot just an hour before. It was astounding. I'm sure it would have been. You see, both sides were well disposed to each other at this first Christmas. They had a lot of comforts from home. All the attrition and death that would follow in 1915 had not yet commenced. And so there was this incredible, most famous truce in military history. The soldiers even sang carols to each other in German and English and exchanged gifts. But the generals were shocked. High, cam high command diaries and statements were expressing 
anxiety that this was going to sap the troops' will to fight. No war, peace. Is that what we're promised at Christmas? Well, no, it's not referring to war, as wonderful as that would be. So many would long for that in our world. And it's not even about the second thing that people will think about when they hear peace, the word peace today. They'll think freedom from stress, all the worries and anxieties of this world. We live in an age where there is high levels of anxiety and fear and depression and concern about so many things. We live in a taxing age where there is great mental distress over many things. And, of course, many would love that to be the case, that peace in that sense be given. But there's something deeper that the Bible's offering, even greater than those two things, as wonderful as they might be. It's the fact that 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son, the Lord Jesus, into our world to deal with a far greater problem that we face, and that is our broken relationship between a holy God and us sinful human beings who want to sit on the throne. We want to push God off it and just run our life our own way and ignore his involvement at all. We don't want to submit to his rule as our rightful ruler as our creator over us. We want to just do things our own way. And yet Jesus was sent. He left the comforts of heaven, experienced life on earth with all its struggles so that he might lay his life down for us and broker a peace deal between us and a holy God. Born in a manger, experiencing life with all its struggles, identified with us, lived amongst us, but more than that, died in our place. And that is how we are brought peace with God, the Bible tells us. But maybe you're thinking, well, how does this baby who grew into the man Jesus bring me peace with God by dying on a cross later in his life? You know, why am I at such odds with God anyway? Why do I need Jesus to broker a peace deal with me? The Bible just tells us over and over and over that we're estranged from God, that the relationship really is broken. That's not something we can just tinker with and fix. Our world's been trying for two millennium to find a way that we can just work our way back to God. We might somehow earn our way to heaven, that we might do something to solve it without anybody's help. So we don't really need Jesus. Surely we can do it. I can just be a better person next week. I can just try this or that. But the truth is, whether we're trying hard to live a good life, but just ignoring God, feeling like we don't need him, or whether we're shaking our fist, as it were, in God's face and angry and pushing God away, the result in the end is the same. Uh, we're living in rebellion, standing against God's plan for us, where we're designed to relate to him. And there's nothing we can actually do to fix it. The Bible tells us that we can't rescue ourselves. We're actually in a plight where we need somebody else to assist. And it's so often the case in a rescue situation, isn't it? I think back to the early hours of July 31, 1997, and hundreds of thousands of Australians again crowded around televisions, this time watching emergency workers toil to clear the destruction from two chalets that had collapsed under a landslide in Threadbow, killing 18 people. 
because Stuart Diver being the only one that has survived that miraculously, not being discovered until he's 53 hours into it, lying in a cavity where he can hardly move his body, icy water running under all the debris. He has watched his own wife be ripped out of his hands and be one of the 18 who have died in this tragedy, the sole survivor. When he heard voices after 53 hours, he thought he was delusional, that he was dreaming, that there can't possibly be anyone who was going to get to him. And yet after 65 hours, they were able to bring him out from the rubble. Completely dependent, of course, on outside intervention. He would never have escaped. The debris would have been his tomb as well. He needed somebody to reach down and pull him out. And the Bible says to us it's the same situation with us and a holy God. We desperately need a saviour. We can't fix it ourselves. We need somebody to step in. And this is where the birth of Jesus comes in. That's why it's so glorious in its news that a baby was born 2,000 years ago. How can this be the great light that changes the world? Well, because Jesus wasn't just the child born in a manger, he was the man born to be our saviour. And in God's great desire for us, he wanted to restore that broken relationship. And so he sends Christ to earth to take our place, take the punishment upon himself that we deserve for our rejection of God's rule. And so as Jesus dies, he bears all of our sin and so pays and clears our debt completely before God the Father. It's an incredible picture of God's love that he would go to such lengths that he would substitute his own son for rebel sinners that we might be restored. Is it any wonder then when you hear the angel's words in Luke 2 that you should get chills, that should send tingles down your spine when the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When we understand the context of the centuries of waiting and waiting and waiting for this Christ to come, this light that might dawn, and finally he enters our world and the angel can say, this is for all people, joy now, great joy. It's a wondrous moment. And it's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that brings it. And it's a freedom not just from war or from our anxiety and the struggles of living day to day in a fallen world, but it's eternal peace with our heavenly Father, a peace that cannot be taken away, that goes on and on into eternity, that we don't have to earn, but we simply receive. The question, though, is whether we want to receive it. We don't get it automatically. You know that research by the Australian Institute um, the last couple of Christmases has found that 75% of us like buying gifts for other people at Christmas. As one of the 25, I find that figure astounding. Uh, that's amazing that so many of us love going out and buying gifts for others. But I tell you, there's a flip side to that coin. Only 50% of us want other people to buy our gifts because we don't think they'll give us the right thing. We'd rather... They gave us the money or we went and bought a gift for ourselves, 50% of us. Why is that the case? Because this Christmas, $980 million in gifts will get put in the cupboard because we don't like the gift. 
almost a billion dollars wasted in gifts that we don't want to receive, that we don't open, and that we place away. It's incredible, isn't it? Imagine receiving the priceless gift of God's only son, forgiveness, the promise of eternal life, and saying, no, look, I think I'm just going to leave that unwrapped under the tree. It'd be a heartbreaking picture, surely. All we need to do to receive the gift is to acknowledge our need, to say, yeah, look, I can't fix this problem. I can't make myself right before you, Lord, that I need a rescuer and you've sent one for me, that in Jesus I have everything I need, the one who came and laid down his life for me, who bore what I deserve so that I might be forgiven, that I might be offered eternal life. Now that is a gift I want to receive. I want to acknowledge my need, be humble enough to say, please, I'm going to trust in Jesus as my saviour. And if we do that, we're told that we will have peace with God, not just today, but every day, forever. That's a gift. Now, I know a lot of you have received that gift already. And if you receive that gift already, I want to challenge you tonight are you thankful? Are you grateful for that gift? Are you expressing that gratefulness to God each and every day? Have you ever pictured that scene? I'm sure if you're a parent, you can visualize it. Uh, they're opening the presents on Christmas Day, maybe the day before, or the day after, maybe with other family members. Auntie Sue, Uncle Frank have given some great gift to your child who hurriedly opens it, rips off the wrapping and runs off to go and play with the gift and never says boo to anyone. And you're like, hang on, hang on, you come back. You, you need to thank Auntie Sue. You need to thank Uncle Frank for that present. You know, go and say thank you for my gift. We, we scold them. We want them to be appreciative of the fact that this was given by somebody, that they've gone to the trouble of finding this gift for them. And if they like it, it's not going in the back of the cupboard. They should be really thankful, Right. And yet we can do the same thing with some of the greatest things. We're blessed with amazing gifts every day on planet Earth that come from the hand of our Heavenly Father, good gifts passed down to us. Every good gift that we receive is from Him. But the greatest by far is the gift of His Son, whom He gave for us at great price so that we might be taken out of darkness and ushered into the light of eternity with Him. And so if Christians are not the most thankful people on earth, there is something wrong. It should just burst out of us every day. We're so aware of our need and we're so grateful to God that he has shown mercy on me, a sinner. I want to be a thankful person. And surely at Christmas time, if at no other time, this should be all the more on my mind, that I should be all the more conscious, conscious of what I have received at such great cost, awaited centuries for, held out this hope that would come, that would dawn one day, and as we sit 2,000 years this side of the cross, 
to be aware fully of God's amazing plan of salvation and all that he has done to bring us to salvation in his son. We should be so thankful and so ready to share that hope that we have, that others may hear it. I just need people to hear this message. It is the most important thing. And it's something that should just roll out of my mouth at this time of the year, all that God has done for me in the giving of his son. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy and love towards us. Lord, help us to see century after century passing for your old covenant people Israel awaiting this promised one who would come, the light that would dawn, the Messiah, the anointed one who would come and offer salvation, who would bring us to peace with you, who would usher us into a joy not known. Lord, help us to see all that flows to us simply by placing our trust in your Son given for us. Lord, help us to grasp your love if we have not received your gift already. And for those of us who have, uh, may this Christmas we be so aware of your wonderful, wonderful grace, undeserved favour shown to us in the gift of Christ, that we might be filled to overflowing with thankful hearts, ready to express our gratefulness, ready to share the hope that we have. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.